Section 15 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 35. Old Lamps and New. God said, Let Newton be, and all was light. This is the famous line in which Pope describes the opening of that new era in science which we associate with the name of Newton. Some of the most momentous discoveries by means of which Newton opened a new chapter in the history of the world's science were made before Queen Anne came to the throne, and their author outlived the Queen by many years, but it was during the reign of Queen Anne that he became president of the Royal Society a place which he held until his death, and Queen Anne had the honor of bestowing a knighthood on him. It may be said that Prince George of Denmark made some atonement to history for his habitual emptiness and his frequent blunders by showing that he had a genuine interest in some of Newton's discoveries and giving what help he could to the great scientific philosopher in obtaining the means of carrying out his plans. Thus there is ample warrant for associating with the reign of Queen Anne the surpassing glory of Newton's name and career. One does not now readily connect the fame of Newton with the political movements of his time, but his biographers have to record the fact that he sat in two parliaments as the representative of his university, Cambridge. Newton does not appear, however, to have taken much more of a part in actual parliamentary life than Gibbon did at a later period when he had a seat on the benches of the House of Commons. There is no occasion here to enter into any dissertation on the wonders accomplished by Newton for the development of that science which has to do with the movements of the earth and its relation to the other worlds of matter seen by us as stars in the sky. The discovery of the principle of gravitation would alone mark a new epoch in the history of science. Newton stands as distinctly at the head of England's scientific discovery as Shakespeare does at the head of England's dramatic poetry. The life, the thoughts, and the observations of Newton make the beginning of an era in the world of science. Newton combined the keenest powers of practical observation with that far-reaching, overarching, imaginative faculty which can construct a whole system out of mere suggestive material. The student who becomes absorbed in the contemplation of Newton's marvelous career is naturally inclined to think of a man profoundly and even sternly given up to science and indifferent to everything but its claims. Newton's own estimate of himself was very different. In some words of touching simplicity and modesty, which are never likely to be forgotten, he said, not long before his death, I know not what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. The historian of Queen Anne's reign may well be excused if he is unwilling to allow the career of Newton to be claimed altogether by any previous reign, 
and eagerly lays hold of facts which warrant him in ranking such a man with the other subjects of Queen Anne, who have won for the years during which she occupied her throne the renown of a distinct era in the intellectual development of England. Perhaps the relative positions of Aristotle and Plato in the realms of human thought might be said to admit of comparison, in a certain degree, with the relations between Sir Isaac Newton and Bishop Berkeley in the same field. Berkeley was undoubtedly a great thinker, and in the intellectual regions to which his genius belonged he may be described as a creative thinker. But he was not an observer, and his domain was only of the mind. Pope paid a tribute as eloquent in its own way to Berkeley as the tribute he had offered to Newton, when he ascribed in his famous line, To Berkeley every virtue under heaven. Berkeley, like Newton, can be claimed only in a limited sense by the historian of Queen Anne's reign as one of the figures which give character and distinction to that epoch. He lived indeed during the reign and had given evidence of his marvelous powers as a scholar and a thinker, and of his generous and unfaltering devotion to the welfare of humanity. If Berkeley himself had been appealed to for his record, he would probably have said, as the hero of Lee Hunt's poem did to the angel, write me as one who loves his fellow men. Berkeley was an Irishman by birth and bringing up. He was born in the neighborhood of Kilkenny in 1685 and was educated at a Kilkenny school and afterwards at Trinity College, Dublin, where he studied, obtained a fellowship, and remained for many years. He soon gave evidence of his original powers as a thinker and a reasoner, and as the possessor of a certain faculty of imaginative insight or instinct, which had something poetical and even unearthly in it, and carried him securely and unbewildered into regions of almost supernatural philosophical inspiration. He became a clergyman of the state church, and about that period of the reign of Queen Anne, at which we have now arrived, he came to London in order to arrange for the publication of some of his earlier philosophical works. In London he was introduced to political, literary, and fashionable society by Swift and Steele. Through Swift he made the acquaintance of Lord Peterborough, who was then engaged on a diplomatic mission abroad, and from Peterborough he obtained the appointment of chaplain and secretary. We need not follow his career any farther, for a little more of it belongs to the reign of Queen Anne. It was in the highest sense an active and even an adventurous career, for Berkeley had great projects for the spreading of the gospel among the savage tribes of the Bermudas and among the Indian races of the North American continent, and he devoted years of his life and a large amount of his fortune to the establishment of teaching institutions for these regions, institutions which he founded, directed, and watched over for a long time himself. To the world in general, Bishop Berkeley, he was afterwards raised to the bishopric, is best known as the author of the theory that there is no such thing as matter, in the sense of a substance having an existence independent of the faculties which are capable of perceiving it. 
or at all events that there is no possibility of proving the existence of any such independent substance. It is easy to understand that such a proposition opened itself naturally to all manner of ridicule from those who had not taken the trouble to understand it, and from many who were not capable of understanding it even if they had taken the trouble to try. Byron's famous two lines are, of course, only the outburst of a jocular mood, for Byron did not really believe, whatever many of his readers may have done, that he had wholly settled the question. Often as these two lines have been quoted, they will bear quoting again. In Don Juan, Byron says, When Bishop Barclay said there was no matter, and proved it, t'was no matter what he said. Bishop Barclay's theory was designed to be, and may yet prove, a complete refutation on philosophical, and even on what might be called scientific grounds, of the doctrines of materialism, which at that time were beginning to identify themselves more or less definitely with the doctrines of atheism. The development of exact sciences had been leading many great thinkers into the belief that where science could not reach, there was nothing to be reached, and where man could not prove anything, there was nothing to be proved. The theory of evolution, which has become such a power in modern thought and life, was then finding its earliest systematic development among some of the German philosophical writers. The object of Berkeley was to deny and refute the main proposition on which this theory rested. Barclay contended that there could be no proof of the existence of matter except such as we find in our own perceptions. God had given us, he argued, the senses by which alone we could realize the existence of matter or know anything at all about it, and therefore there could be no possible proof of the existence of matter independently of the evidence supplied by our own senses. So much of Berkeley's doctrine may almost be set down as self-evident. Of course, it may be said that Berkeley went still farther than this and positively asserted that there is no such thing as matter, and that the supposed reality to which we give that name is nothing but a figment of the senses and perceptions. But the essential condition of Berkeley's theory is found in the declaration that there is no possibility of proving the existence of the substratum which we call matter independently of the evidence given by our own senses, and then Berkeley calls upon the philosophers of materialism to tell us what was the power which endowed mankind with those senses and perceptions by means of which alone we can form any idea of material substance. The argument Samuel Johnson used with so much apparent effect, when he stamped his foot upon the ground and proclaimed that he had thereby refuted Berkeley's theory, only proved, of course, that Johnson had not been at any pains to understand the meaning of Berkeley's proposition. Berkeley was contending that the existence of matter cannot be proved without perception, and Johnson believed himself to be giving a conclusive reply when he demonstrated that perception can testify to the existence of matter. There is but little controversy on Bishop Berkeley and his theory nowadays, 
and the materialistic philosophy of the present time does not, as a rule, set up any doctrine positively denying the existence of a divine creator and a world outside our knowledge of nature. But it is not too much to say that wherever a negation of this kind is distinctly put forward, it can have no more formidable antagonist than that which is found in the doctrine maintained by Berkeley. An element of inappreciable value is added to the historical dignity of Queen Anne's reign by the fact that it saw Berkeley's entrance into the field of philosophic science. The reign of Queen Anne is, of course, associated rather with letters, with politics and with arms, than with pure science, either physical or metaphysical. These pages have already described most of the men who won fame in political life, in literature, and on the battlefield. The age was especially remarkable for the number of writers it produced, of whom it might fairly be said that their literary achievement only just fell short of entitling them to a place among the great masters of literature. One of these was assuredly Dr. John Arbuthnot, Johnson goes so far as to declare that Dr. Arbuthnot was the first man among the eminent writers in Queen Anne's time. Macaulay speaks somewhat more moderately, but he pays a tribute to Arbuthnot's style hardly to be surpassed when he says that there are passages in Arbuthnot's satirical work which we cannot distinguish from Swift's best writing. Thackeray warms into genuine enthusiasm, when he comes to tell of Arbuthnot's gifts, accomplishments, and sweetness of nature. Johnson's commendation of Arbuthnot is practically justified by the fact that the most famous of all Arbuthnot's works was for a long time commonly ascribed to Swift. This is the book by which Arbuthnot has established his highest claim to a place in history. He has created in it a typical character destined apparently to live forever. We can hardly imagine a change in human progress which would be likely to efface John Bull as the accepted representative of the Englishman. It is not a mere caricature. It is not a masterpiece of mere satire. It is a faithful embodiment in one humorous personation of all the characteristics generally supposed to make up the typical Englishman. Droll and comical it is, and was intended to be. But we know on classic authority that truth can be told in jesting, and we must all have seen for ourselves how a perfectly recognizable portrait of a man can be produced by a pencil which purposely and deliberately exaggerates all the more marked characteristics of the person thus humorously represented. The most sensitive or most self-satisfied Englishman is ready to admit that the John Bull figure, as we now know it, embodies fairly enough, from the humorous point of view, the traditional and national peculiarities of the being whom we have agreed to recognize as a type of English civilization. There has been some dispute as to the original invention of the name John Bull, but it is certain that the history of John Bull, brought out in 1713 by Dr. Arbuthnot, first introduced the name and the character to the literature of England and the recognition of the world. The book was a political satire, 
and its principal object was to stir up the growing dissatisfaction of the English people with the objects and the progress of the war maintained by England and her allies on the question of the Spanish succession. Arbuthnot was a Scotchman by birth and a physician by profession. He had settled in London and had risen to great practice in his profession, had been made one of the physicians to Queen Anne, and, as we shall see later on, was in attendance upon her during her last illness. He had an inborn capacity for literature, and while following his professional work in London, he had made the acquaintance and entered into the pursuits of most of the eminent poets, prose writers, wits, and politicians who illuminated the reign of Queen Anne. Pope and Swift were among his intimate friends, and he is understood to have worked with Swift in more than one literary undertaking. The history of John Bull creates a number of typical figures, most of which have been universally accepted as humorous, although, of course, extravagant presentations of the national characters which they profess to embody and illustrate. The book sets out to tell the story of a certain lawsuit between John Bull the clothier and Mr. Frog the linen draper on the one hand and Lord Strutt on the other hand. Mr. Frog the linen draper is intended to personify England's Dutch ally although in the lapse of time the name of Frog came to be employed by satirical and insular Englishmen as the fitting epithet for the nation with which John Bull and the Dutchman were engaged in unfriendly argument. Lord Strutt is meant for Philip, Duke of Anjou, and Louis XIV is brought in under the uncomplimentary appellation of Louis Baboon. The Archduke Charles comes off easily as Esquire South, while the Duke of Savoy becomes Ned the Chimney Sweeper, and the King of Portugal is Tom the Dustman. The Duke of Marlborough, whom the satire was meant especially to discredit, figures in the unattractive character of Humphrey Hocus the Attorney. John Bull, we are told, is an honest, plain-dealing fellow, choleric, bold, and of a very unconstant temper. It is explained for our instruction that this lack of constancy in honest John Bull's temper was chiefly caused by the effect produced upon his spirits by the uncertain weather which belongs to his climate and country. His spirits, we are told, rose and fell with the weather glass. John Bull is described as engaged in a sort of perpetual rivalry with Louis Baboon. It was not that he had any reason to feel jealous of Louis, for he was well able to encounter him at any moment and under any conditions, at backsword, single falchion, or cudgel play. But then he was very apt to quarrel with his best friends, especially if they pretended to govern him. If you flattered him, you might lead him like a child. It will easily be seen how satire of this description was meant to work its way. John Bull had no reason to be jealous of Louis Baboon, but he could easily be led away by those who flattered him, and he could thus be drawn into believing, without any adequate evidence, that poor Louis Baboon was secretly plotting to do him some serious injury. Another touch of the description had a distinct application to the alleged mismanagement of public accounts, which was brought as a charge against Marlborough by those who were eager to see an end of the war. We are told of John Bull that 
no man alive was more careless in looking into his accounts or more cheated by partners, apprentices, and servants. It was not that Mr. John Bull was incapable of managing his financial affairs, if only he would turn his attention to the subject, but he liked to lead a quiet and jolly life, and was too apt to trust overmuch to those whom he believed his faithful servants. He was a boon companion, loving his bottle and his diversion, for to say truth, no man kept a better house than John, nor spent his money more generously. It should be said that the full title of the work is Law is a Bottomless Pit, or The History of John Bull. The opening chapter, which deals with the occasion of the lawsuit, tells us how a great quarrel broke out in a certain neighborhood on the death of the late Lord Strutt in consequence of the fact that the deceased nobleman had been prevailed upon by some roguish person to settle his estate upon his cousin, Philip Baboon, to the great disappointment of his other cousin, Esquire South. The reader will have no difficulty in seeing how the history of John Bull is made to fit in with or to symbolize the events and the personages in the great quarrel concerning the succession to the Spanish crown. Among the chief tradesmen, with whom the late Lord Strutt was accustomed to have dealings, was John Bull and Nick Frog. The young Philip Baboon has a grandfather, Louis Baboon, and both John Bull and Nick Frog get it into their heads that Philip Baboon, the new Lord Strutt, will take away his custom from them and give it to his grandfather. They therefore serve him with notice that unless he gives them sufficient security that he will not thus withdraw his custom from them, in favor of his grandfather, they will at once take an action against him, and will thus involve him in expense, and as his estate is much embarrassed, this must plunge him into difficulties, from which it will not be easy for him to extricate himself. Thus the story of the lawsuit opens, and it is from first to last a most amusing, clever, and telling burlesque of the events and personages engaged in the war arising out of the Spanish succession. John Bull's wife may be taken to typify the British Parliament by whom the war was urged upon John Bull, the British people. Mrs. Bull had been the main cause of her poor husband's plunging into the lawsuit. Don't you hear, she asks him indignantly one day, how Lord Strutt has bespoke his liveries at Louis Baboon's shop? Don't you see how that old fox steals away your customers and turns you out of your business every day, and you sit like an idle drone with your hands in your pockets? Fie upon Up, man, rouse thyself. I'll sell to my shift before I'll be so used by that knave. So the lawsuit was got up and a number of other tradesmen who also believed they had been injured by old Louis Baboon, were glad of an opportunity of joining against him, provided that John Bull and Frog would bear the charges of the suit, and so Ned the chimney-sweeper of Savoy and Tom the Portugal dustman put in their claims. The cause was placed in the hands of Humphrey Hocus the attorney. This Hocus, as we have seen, was meant for the Duke of Marlborough, whom his political enemies used to accuse of having fostered the war for his own personal advantages. Hocus, says the author, was an old cunning attorney, and though this was the first considerable suit that ever he was engaged in, he showed himself superior in address to most of his profession. He kept always good clerks, 
he loved money, was smooth-tongued, gave good words, and seldom lost his temper. He was not worse than an infidel, for he provided plentifully for his family, but he loved himself better than them all. The neighbors reported that he was henpecked, which was impossible by such a mild-spirited woman as his wife was. This last touch told, of course, most effectively in the mind of the public, because the temper of the Duchess of Marlborough and the dominion she exercised over her husband and over others, too, made a subject of common talk among all classes of society. We need not follow the history of this lawsuit any further. It is one of the most famous pieces of satire known to the literature of the modern world. The satire is of an extravagant order and sometimes becomes utter burlesque, but like all really artistic burlesque, it retains enough of the lineaments, proportions, and characteristic peculiarities of the originals to leave one in no doubt as to the subject of each caricature. All the conspicuous political figures of the reign come into the story. The reader who takes it up for the first time at the present day will find himself carried away by its humors, just as he might be if he were studying some masterpiece of satire intended to show up the leading personages in the political life of his own day. The figures in the narrative all appear to live and move, and where the author has any opportunity of giving a passage in his own style, he discourses to his readers in clear, simple, perfect English. The history of John Bull was for a long time published with the works of Swift, and many believed that Swift took a leading part in the composition of the narrative. It is quite probable that Swift may have given suggestions and offered advice in the construction of the work, but it may be taken for granted that Dr. Arbuthnot was its author in the fullest sense of the word, and every other writing which we have from his pen gives additional evidence as to his capacity for the production of such a piece of unsurpassed satirical humor. There are obvious reasons why Arbuthnot might not just then have wished to be known as the author, Arbuthnot the man long outlived the reign of Queen Anne. His fame as an author will live with the fame of the reign. William Congreve, till then the greatest of English dramatic authors since the Elizabethan era, had done all his best work before Queen Anne came to the throne, and we hardly associate him now with the literary period of Pope and Swift but he published a volume of poems in 1710, and a complete edition of his works appeared in the same year. Sir Samuel Garth, poet and physician, lived through and beyond the age of Anne, but his lamp had ceased to burn at its brightest when Anne succeeded, while that of John Gay was only just beginning to burn with its real power when the rain was coming to a close. Thomas Brown, whom Addison describes as of facetious memory, a man who had some genuine powers of imagination, of humor, and of poetry, seems, as Dr. Johnson says, to have thought it the pinnacle of excellence to be a merry fellow, and therefore laid out his powers upon small jests and gross buffoonery. He died while the rain was still young. These later names are mentioned here because they must be regarded as having contributed something to the splendid store of literature which enriched the age. In one sense, the mere fact that the historian does not lay any stress upon his claim to regard them 
as part of the literary constellation of the Queen Anne era, only adds another tribute to the order which that constellation must hold in the literary firmament. We may fairly ask what must be the renown of that literary age when those who are most anxious to maintain its renown can freely admit that the best works of such men do not belong to its epoch. This chapter professes to tell of old lamps and new. It has described some of the older lamps, which were still enlightening the reign of Queen Anne, and were yet to burn into that of the succeeding family. Before the life of Queen Anne had quite come to a close, some new lamps had just been lighted, which were destined to illumine forever the art and literature of England. Not long before Anne became queen, a boy named William Hogarth was born in London, who may be said to have created by his own almost untaught genius a school of British art for himself, and who has never had any rival in the kind of work he dedicated to the ordinary everyday life of the England living around him. So obscure were the conditions in which this boy began his existence that it is not quite certain whether he was born in 1697 or 1698, and there is even some dispute as to whether his birthplace was in the parish of St. Martin Ludgate or in the parish of St. Bartholomew. His family appeared to have come from Westmoreland, and his father was the third son of a poor, hard-working yeoman. William Hogarth's father is said to have been a self-educated man, and he had apparently given himself an education considerably better than that which was at the time likely to be found among men of his class. This man made his way to London and settled there and succeeded in obtaining employment as corrector of the press. He does not seem to have made by his labors any income which could enable him to give his son William a promising start in life. The boy appears to have been brought up with no better prospect than that of earning his living by some mechanical occupation. He was bound apprentice to a silversmith and was set to work in that part of the business having to do with the engraving of arms and ciphers upon plate. Even this occupation, however, had something artistic in it, something akin to art, and encouraging to the tastes of a boy whose natural inclination must have found congenial employment in any work not belonging to merely mechanical handicraft. From the beginning of his apprenticeship, Hogarth set himself to acquire a knowledge of drawing. One of his biographers tells us that he felt the impulse of genius, and it directed him to painting, though little apprised at that time of the mode nature had intended he should pursue. The special turn of his genius soon made itself evident. His earliest attempts at drawing displayed themselves in the form of caricature. We are told that while Hogarth was still early in his apprenticeship, he went one Sunday with two or three comrades to make a country excursion into the neighborhood of Highgate. The day became very hot, the boys had tired themselves with their tramp, and they turned for rest into a country alehouse. While they were there, a quarrel arose between two wayfarers who, like themselves, were enjoying the holiday after their own fashion, and were having a rest and a drink in the public room where young Hogarth and his companions were seated. One of the disputants struck the other with a quart pot on the head and cut him rather severely. 
the face of the unlucky man thus injured became so grotesquely distorted by pain and wrath that it made a ludicrous show which was far too tempting to be resisted by the embryo caricaturist who was a spectator of the incident young hogarth carried a pencil and paper with him ready at any moment to dash off a sketch of something which might attract his notice on his holiday ramble and he instantly jotted down a droll likeness of the man's face as it thus appeared in comical convulsion hogarth in fact drew a picture in a few happy touches of the injured man of his antagonist and of some among those who were looking on the remarkable peculiarity about the sketch was that while it was downright caricature in every detail the faces bore a striking likeness to their originals and the fidelity of the portrait painter if a boy with a pencil and a piece of paper may be thus described was recognized with uproarious delight by most of the assembled company let us hope that the boy's successful attempt at caricature had the effect of restoring good temper and good fellowship to the quarrelsome pair whose dispute had brought about so sudden a development of art it is said that this incident first turned the mind of the young hogarth directly to that particular field of art which nature had designed for his cultivation this story is accepted as true by some at least of hogarth's biographers and it is quite within the range of probability that some such incident may have quickened the artistic instincts of the boy into a recognition of his genuine capacity in any case the story has quite as much probability in it as most of the stories have which profess to enlighten us as to the earliest revelation of genius in the career of a great man one new lamp must be mentioned although it had only just begun to burn within the lifetime of queen anne and did not until her death give any of its light to literature samuel johnson himself compels us to associate his name with that of queen anne although he was but a little child in her time he has left us a picture the more charming and the more real for its very vagueness of his one meeting with the queen anne kept up the old fashion of touching for the king's evil and johnson's mother fearing at one time that her child was threatened with the malady carried him to london where he was actually touched by the queen Boswell tells us the story which has since been told over and over again in all languages. It gave Johnson some pleasure to recall his childish memory of this interview with royalty. He used to tell his friends that he had a confused, but somehow a sort of solemn recollection, of a lady in diamonds and a long black hood. This one association of Johnson with Queen Anne and the picture which it calls up to the mind may be held to justify the introduction of Boswell's hero into the present chapter. There is something peculiarly interesting and even touching in the picture. The representative, titular representative at least of the age, just about to close, is besought to give a kindly touch to one who is destined to be a representative of the age about to open, and she lays her hand upon him graciously and bids him to be well. The meeting might be held to typify in a certain sense the contact between sinking superstition and rising knowledge. End of section 15